You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Welcome, everybody. My name is Val Petrova. I am the Outreach Coordinator of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies. And I want to thank you all for coming to join us for one of our many, many talks. Uh, something that I want to point out is on the table, we have flyers. We have even more talks scheduled, so definitely check them out. We have several more coming up uh, through the end of this quarter. And I will just uh, hand this over to Professor Ladebrunyuk, who will uh, introduce our speaker today. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So it's my great pleasure to include to introduce Dr. Svetlana Hutka. She has a PhD in sociology uh, and is an associate professor of sociology at the National University of Kiev Mohyla Academy in Kiev. And um, she uh, has an illustrious career in, in 2010 and 2012 and 2013. She was recognized as the best young sociologist of the year in Ukraine. Uh, for her comparative studies of post-socialist transformations. And that is one of the most prestigious prizes in the field of social sciences in Ukraine. Um, this is not Svetlana's first time with us at the University of Washington. In 2012, 2013, she was a Carnegie Fellow, a visiting and scholar. And Lada actually was uh, my advisor here. Yeah, so uh, she was here at the Jackson School. Um, and then she also spent part of that uh, Carnegie Fellowship yeah. at UC Berkeley. Um, so right now, uh, Dr. Futka is a Fulbright scholar, a visiting scholar, and she has transitioned to being visiting assistant pro associate professor at the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at Stanford University. And she is pursuing a research project on the civic political apathy of her involvement, governance and values in transition countries. And she's examining uh, multifaceted shifts in political culture with special attention to Ukraine. Uh, Dr. Futka has published several articles uh, on the subjective well-being and social stratification of Ukrainians. And, um, Last year, she uh, had, had a book published on national identity and identity formation processes in different regions of Ukraine. And this year, she has co-authored a book with uh, Dmitro Hutke on national self-perception of the population of Ukraine, uh, the state, the main determinants, and after effects. So uh, please join me in welcoming Dr. Hutka. Thank you very much, and uh, I'm really delighted to be here. It's a big pleasure for me, and I have a very special sentiment to this place because it was my first place in USA where I uh, was working as a fellow scholar, and I see a lot of people uh, whom I know from my previous visits here, and uh, I uh, will be glad to hear all your questions, especially tricky questions, um, because the issues uh, we will discuss are not that simple sometimes, and some uh, moments are not that obvious. I will try uh, to be focused not on the interpretations, but on facts and on trends mainly. And I will try not to be um, too overwhelming with information, but um, just in case there is a lot of data, so be prepared. And uh, let's, let me start 
uh, this talk. Well, uh, actually, uh, when we are speaking about the contemporary uh, issues uh, and contemporary uh, relations between Russia and Ukraine, uh, we may start from the uh, last three years uh, problems, uh, let's say so neutral, or actually we may start uh, from the earlier uh, preconditions of such relations, uh, fr from some historical preconditions. Uh, but uh, what we actually may see here, that uh, from the very beginning of the conflict, uh, the view, uh, the perception of situation, attitudes of uh, to situation in Ukraine was completely opposite in Russia and in Ukraine. Uh, this uh, percentage, 86 uh, percent, uh, percent actually became uh, something kind of mem, internet mem, uh, because support for all actions of a Russian government, all the issues with Ukraine was at level at least uh, 84, 86, 85 percent. And uh, what is quite uh, symptomatic here, it's a uh, red uh, highlighted uh, question. Uh, does Russia has a right to join to itself the territories of ex-USSR republics? Uh, on the basis of declarations uh, that Russians who live there are discriminated and deprived in their rights. And uh, their symptomatic answer, yes, Russia has this right. Uh, and should protect its people. And in general, Russia can do this legally, but, and then you have a set of different rationalizations of this issue. Uh, so here we should uh, to step back a bit into the history of the uh, neighborhood politics of Russia for last at least 20 years, if not to go to the uh, more imperialistic uh, past. Actually, uh, when we're speaking about the uh, Ukraine uh, from the uh, year uh, from the middle of 90s uh, we have a set of tensions uh, concerned with the uh, border issues uh, first of all Crimea and actually conflicts in Crimea it's not something that occurred just like two years ago as it is quite often presented uh, we had a set of semi-military conflicts with Russia about Crimea Peninsula and as well uh, about the uh, division of the Black Sea uh, ships. Uh, there was a couple of incidents in Odessa uh, with, uh, when uh, one of the military ships was seized by Ukrainian military uh, forces uh, because uh, Russian forces actually stole him with all the instruments and so on. It was like the uh, not international level conflict, but it has uh, been uh, placed into this general picture. And you may see that actually uh, this perception of uh, Ukraine uh, by Russians is quite specific uh, because uh, Ukrainians I see uh, in 2009 and uh, 2014 as uh, actually most uh, probable enemies of Russia in case of military conflicts. Why these three years, actually? Uh, because uh, 2008, there was a war with Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, it was time of uh, uh, when Ukraine supported Georgia this level. And uh, propaganda actually walked the way that Ukraine also was blamed as the bad country, um, which actually did not follow the uh, interests of the Russia in this friendship and so on. Also, what we have 
a change in the views of population. In 90s, actually, you may see that by the international studies, uh, actually only like are, well, a bit less than half the population, uh, they seen uh, uh, parts of neighborhood countries as belonging to Russia. While uh, from the uh, 2000s, uh, we have quite stable position that actually dissolution of Soviet Union, it was bad uh, case, it was a bad event, and actually we have somehow to gather again Russian uh, lands into, our, into one hand. And uh, also one uh, more like a pre- uh, uh, preconditioning uh, view, uh, which is quite representative here, uh, it's uh, how Russians uh, see the uh, Ukraine as state. And actually, uh, you may see that almost half the population think that Ukraine as a state don't has its own history. I don't uh, actually present uh, this picture here because it's not a well academic picture, uh, but there is a lot of memes in internet. Then you may compare actually what you had on the place of Moscow till the at least 15th century. Actually, these were forests, and what you had uh, during this time on the territory of Kiev. You have quite developed culture. Uh, of course, it was not contemporary Ukraine, but I mean, when we're speaking about these uh, tensions at level of who has its own history and so on, and how it then is represented in a mass media, it might be quite influential. Uh, speaking about the uh, dynamic of uh, vision of uh, relationships with Russia, uh, support for independence of Ukraine is very high. And even though there is a huge discussion, if Ukraine is failed state, uh, should Ukraine be like uh, a bit ruled uh, by the uh, maybe uh, big governments like uh, watchdogs uh, in the region and so on, uh, you may see that support for independence in Ukraine uh, never been less than uh, for majority population. And uh, what is uh, very interesting here is the splashes of this support. All these splashes of this support are related directly uh, to the uh, way uh, how Russia behaved with her neighbors. Uh, first and second war in Chechnya, we have splash in support for independence in Ukraine. Uh, Russian-Ukrainian territorial conflict in Crimea, so-called Tuzla problem, it was a huge problem. Uh, again, we have this splash. War of Russia with Georgia, again with splash. And when Russia occupies Crimea, we have almost 90% of this support. And still, uh, for the last three years, this support is quite stable. So actually, uh, when we have all these you know, uh, talks uh, on international level and so on about the federalization agenda for Ukraine, it is absolutely artificial. Uh, because again, uh, if you will uh, see the trends at least for last, uh, for last uh, almost uh, 10 years, uh, you may see that actually uh, majority population uh, want to see country united. And if you will go in uh, details uh, for last years, uh, when uh, this federalization uh, discussion was actually uh, became uh, more uh, like more stressed in all mass media, uh, even for last three years, uh, you may see that actually this support is never more than, on average, like 15-20% uh, for population. Uh, by the way, 
all these data they are representative for Ukraine and for Russia at national level. So we're not speaking about the some cases and so on. We always speak about the national representative data. Uh, and uh, even uh, in uh, some regions uh, like Donbass, and uh, we will go to this further, uh, you will see that actually support for the uh, unification uh, with Russia is not that high as it is presented again uh, oh, by uh, many means. Uh, what is the most I would say paradoxical thing in relations uh, in attitudes of Ukrainians to Russians and vice versa is actually uh, for me uh, a couple of years ago it was like a, something like a new information uh, that uh, Russians normally uh, for many years uh, they perceive Ukrainians uh, at uh, worse level than Ukrainians um, Russians. Uh, there is a lot of reasons of this, uh, but again, uh, one of the main reasons, if we will go uh, year by year, will be uh, propaganda, because you see this uh, first uh, huge uh, drop down in 2008, it's again uh, war with Georgia, and then actually in uh, three years, almost in three years, uh, when all this uh, agenda was eliminated from the mass media, from Russian mass media, we again have this 70% of positive attitude to Ukrainians. Uh, then we have some hesitations due to the gas wars and so on, but you may see that next uh, huge uh, fall down is uh, May of 2014, actually after Crimea occupation and huge splash again, uh, media uh, propaganda in uh, Russian uh, news and so on. And actually what happened finally uh, this autumn, uh, this, you know, uh, well, unequal passion of Ukrainians to uh, Russians actually became, uh, well, has almost disappeared. And uh, now uh, these nations, uh, they uh, have almost uh, equally negative attitudes. Uh, but uh, fortunately, uh, this situation became better because again, uh, now Russia is stuck with Syria and they have next level of propaganda about Syria, which by the by is uh, presented uh, by Russian church as a saint war for the orthodoxy against Muslim, religion and so on, quite officially. Uh, we have uh, something kind of a relief in relations uh, between uh, people. Uh, there is quite a general question uh, which might be arising here. Actually, are there any differences, any distinctions between the perception of the Russians as people by Ukrainians and vice versa by Russians of Ukrainians and perception of the Russia as the actually country as whole entity and the Russian government. Yes, this difference is quite clear for people. And by the way, you may see that uh, for, uh, for Russians, uh, Ukrainians, they perceive them uh, quite uh, positively, uh, while uh, Russian government is evaluated really at low, low level. Russia is uh, evaluated a bit better but uh, there is a very clear difference between perception of people, of the institutions, and the country on a whole. 
and the same situation actually is uh, with attitudes of uh, Russians uh, to Ukrainians. If uh, uh, we will go uh, deeper uh, to the current leadership uh, perception, uh, you may see that again uh, quite often uh, the current uh, institutions, Ukrainian institutions, official institutions are blamed by Russians as the uh, one which are actually uh, are responsible for what is going on in relations between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, uh, also we may see that uh, step by step uh, in uh, regions, uh, in Ukrainian regions, uh, these attitudes also have changed. And what is quite noticeable here, uh, the largest change we have in the eastern region. Uh, for example, if uh, in 2013, by the Western Ukraine, which quite often blamed that they perceive like they like hey, have a lot of hate to Russia and so on. Well, you may see that almost 70%, uh, 66% of uh, people in Western Ukraine, uh, it's September 2014. It's actually after the hot phase of war on Donbass, when a lot of people from Western Ukraine were killed, actually. Still, 66% uh, of people, it's a absolute majority, let's say so, in Western Ukraine, they perceive uh, Russians quite positively. Well, yeah, and you may see how actually is evaluated on the government and so on. Uh, in 2015, in a year, uh, you may see that uh, in a year and a bit earlier, southern Ukraine, uh, actually they have not 81% of positive attitude, but only 43% of positive attitudes uh, to the Russians. Eastern Ukraine, the same situation, fall down from 91% of uh, those who have positive attitude to Russians, uh, to Russia, excuse me, is uh, almost well, minus 32%. It's like a twice uh, less people perceive uh, Russia as the something positive. And uh, if, you, if, you, if, you about, if you talk about Eastern Ukraine, does it include uh, this, uh, this Russian-controlled oblasts? Uh, they include uh, those oblasts uh, which are till the May they include the Eastern Ukraine completely. Uh, because the networks, uh, they were uh, still functional, uh, because people, uh, it was risky, uh, but people who were like the supervisors of these networks, they found the ways how to send uh, anchors and how to uh, proceed the service on these territories. Now are these September results, they are without actually those parts of Donbass, because not all Donbass is occupied, those parts of Donbass and Luhansk uh, Oblast, uh, which are controlled by uh, these uh, terrorist groups. Uh, what you may see now after so-called ceasefire, well, hot uh, phase is more or less stopped while people are still killed, uh, even for till, till, the, uh, till the last days, you may see something like a betterment of these attitudes in eastern and southern Ukraine. Uh, while, for example, central Ukraine uh, still is quite skeptical at uh, about this issue. 
speaking about the like this reasoning uh what was the motivation what was the like a driving force of this uh, worsening of the relations uh, quite often it is seen as the problem uh, which is embodied in the uh, this desire of ukraine to go away from russia uh, but actually these dynamics of uh, european orientations in ukraine it's not something surprisingly um, you know emerging in last years if for example uh, we will uh, go to the early 2000s, you will see that uh, this uh, positive attitude uh, was quite high. So it was possible actually um, to have these discussions about the high level of European integration in 2002. Uh, but then um, after 2004, after 2006, uh, we have like a little slight fall down in these uh, orientations and then after 2013 we have a rise but actually what should be noticed here this rise in the importance of european orientation for ukrainians is not only a result of maidan uh, because on the government of yanukovych for last at least two years they uh, put a lot of efforts into the popularization of idea of integration into europe at the level of designing the um, this uh, association with europe uh, and it was this is actually why it was so unexpected that they uh, hadn't signed this agreement because for last two years they put a lot of uh, actually efforts a lot of time uh, they contributed a lot into this discussion of the pushing ukraine uh, to this uh, association with europe um, so actually what had happened on maidan if uh, to put it into comparative context is not that unique and specific uh, it's not that unique and specific if you will take into account the protest practices um, in uh, all democracies uh, you may see that this is actually data from european value survey value survey uh, last five waves and it's data about the regular participation in legal demonstrations in European countries. And you may see that, that, well, yes, Ukraine was more or less more active than other post-socialist societies, uh, but it can be compared with regular activity, regular participation in big rallies, in big mass demonstrations, which we uh, could encounter in Europe. And uh, we know that the level of violence in these protests in all democracies is much higher and to some extent is even like a, something kind of, um, well, routine practice, actually. So we had this joke that, well, it's fine, dude, now we are like uh, protesting as Europeans. Uh, but the problem here is how it was presented. Let's imagine, uh, well, let's take uh, those protests uh, that uh, took place in uh, Paris when uh, hundreds of thousands of people who presented heterosexual uh, values protested against the homosexual uh, marriages, law about homosexual marriages. Those protests were quite violent. Uh, was, could it be the reasoning, for example, for Germany uh, to declare that now uh, those territories in France, which were previously actually historically 
uh, German should be protected by German and uh, we should like reintegrate them in Germany again. Definitely not. It's like a, it's obviously ridiculous uh, argumentation. Uh, but this argumentation was widely used by Russia in case of Ukraine. So that these protests are so violent, so illegal that now we have to rule this country somehow. Otherwise we will have, oh, oh my gosh, what we will have. Uh, so we have sort of uh, orientaliz orientalizing discourse uh, which actually stresses the unlegitimacy of uh, such big mass rallies in other country. And uh, we may see actually from the later results that this discourse was highly successful because it led to the international level discussions about federalization of Ukraine. Uh, we know about this set of different negotiations like Minsk, Minsk first, Minsk second, and so on. Uh, which again, like, are trying to present Ukraine as a weak country, fragile country, uh, which can't, uh, like, govern itself. So maybe big watchdogs should should rule uh, the situation somehow. Um, it's like an illustration, I would say. Uh, it's more about the how Crimea actually was occupied and uh, what is most important here it's uh, um, this uh, declaration of uh, Igor Girkin Strelkov uh, who was uh, for a while a leader of these uh, armed protests in eastern Ukraine uh, who actually uh, is former officer of the uh, special Russian services and uh, he claimed his personal responsibility for unleashing the conflict in which thousands of people have been killed. I was the one who pulled the trigger of this war. If our unit hadn't crossed the border, everything would have fizzled out. And actually, uh, if you will analyze uh, a lot of video records, which are actually presented um, by different people in the internet, uh, you may see that while uh, in majority of cases uh, when uh, we had occupation of the different buildings in eastern Ukraine, uh, local uh, people, they try to uh, be distant from this. And we have studies uh, from April 2015, which were um, done in the eastern and southern Ukraine. Majority, absolute majority people of there, they have not been supporting the occupation of buildings, and they declared that they would like, uh, they wouldn't like uh, to participate in any protests again, uh, searches and so on. And what is also important is like a, a step. Uh, a bit st uh, step aside, but it's also very important. We had uh, that uh, in that time um, one more uh, very big discussion about the legitimacy of Ukrainian authorities. And well, it should be uh, recognized that legitimacy uh, of any authorities at the level of trust of population in Ukraine is very low for many, many years. But if you will compare the trust to, uh, to contemporary authorities with trust to previous authorities in different years, you will see that, well, yeah, it is low, but it's highest in history of Ukraine, 
and is kept uh, at stable level for the longest period. So actually we have kind of the betterment in these trust to the institutions, uh, especially governmental institutions, which in previous years always was very low. Again, uh, speaking about the perception of situation, it is always opposite uh, in Ukraine and in Russia. While, yes, they pretend uh, to say that we have civil war in Ukraine and that there is anarchy, absence of law, banditism and so on, especially uh, in time after Maidan and so on. Uh, also, there were some of ideas uh, that there is like a genocide, killing of peaceful inhabitants by the white nationalists and so on. Uh, and of course, partially it's American provocation, intervention of West and so on. Is, it, is this in Russia you're talking about? Or in uh, it's in Russia. Russia. It's in Russia. Uh, this is how they trace uh, situation, um, those who trace situation in Ukraine, how they percept what's going on in Ukraine. While Ukrainian perceptions actually are quite opposite. Uh, attitudes to the participation of Russian army in Ukrainian events. Well, 34% uh, told that they have like a positive attitude to this. If you would know that among the so-called volunteers uh, who are fighting for the uh, for these uh, new republics on Donbas uh, are Russian uh, militaries, how would you perceive this? And actually, positively would perceive this 44%, uh, negatively 34%, uh, and uh, to like a quarter of people, it's difficult to answer. Uh, but what we have actually, we have such phenomena in uh, public opinion as the uh, this uh, spiral of the uh, silence. Uh, when you actually you know, have some uh, more or less officially presented uh, point of view, uh, which then is uh, evaluated through this service, uh, people are trying uh, to give more or less, you know, uh, coherent answers uh, due to many reasons. And it causes a discussion about the uh, level of the trust uh, to the answers which are given by people in authoritarian societies. Uh, and quite often uh, there is a lot of claims that all these results are not true because uh, Russian people, they uh, actually know they support Ukraine and so on and so on. Uh, but a last studies of Russian sociologists, uh, namely Denis Volkov, uh, who studied uh, specifically the uh, public opinion shifts uh, in authoritarian societies. Uh, he actually uh, present quite, uh, you know, uh, quite uh, well-based evidences that this position through a lot of uh, data from focus groups and in-depth interviews that these views, they are really true, uh, truthful. So, I mean, people really support uh, politics of Putin and so on, and, and they really support this uh, military policy of the uh, Russian government. Uh, what is interesting here that actually Russians don't feel their own responsibility for the government actions. And as a result, they don't feel any responsibility for the what's going on in Ukraine. They're like uh, existing uh, apart from their government. I mean, uh, well, they will approve 
what is going on uh, as a result of the governmental decisions. And even they have a feeling of pride with the country, especially due to the this Crimea occupation, which is seen as, as the historical justice realization and so on. Uh, and uh, thus, uh, they support the policy of uh, Vladimir Putin as a policy which is directed to the uh, glorification uh, and empowerment of Russia. Uh, so this moment, uh, moment of the um, taking into account the legal aspects of the issue, they are just like uh, they put them aside. You remember this first slide with answer with um, question: uh, Is it would it be possible to like to protect Russians even uh, through the military interventions? Well, no, but. So, I mean, again, uh, it's very interesting phenomena, and actually, uh, to many reasons, it is uh, related to the uh, history of contemporary Russia as imperial uh, state, and the fact that actually Russia has never stopped being involved in wars with neighbors. It somehow is actually eliminated from this general discourse about the Russian politics, foreign politics, uh, neighbor politics. Uh, but this is actually what we have for the last 20 years. Um, perception of Western policy uh, towards Ukraine is very tricky uh, because they just like don't take into account the criticism from the Western countries. It is seen as the blaming. Uh, non-justified blaming, which has no reasoning under it, which is actually not uh, grounded well. Uh, so uh, they state that geopolitical and strategical interests of Russia today are more important than uh, even domestic economic and social problems in Russia. And this is actually is the basis for the military mobilization in country, uh, because uh, the last, for example, uh, studies by Konstantin Sonin, uh, he is a Russian economist uh, who had to emigrate from Russia. Uh, he demonstrated that uh, for last year, uh, the budget uh, in in budget of Russia, we have they have really great uh, shifts. Uh, maximum of the expenditures is uh, withdrawn from the house from the education, from the science, and uh, like 30% uh, of budget is spent on police and on military expenditures, especially again taking into account these last um, interventions in Syria. Uh, and again, we are not speaking if it is good or bad, it's this is actually how it is. It's a policy of this uh, country uh, with neighbors and an international level. Uh, the last data, the last data from the uh, Russian society is data of the uh, September of this year um, by Lovada Center. Uh, people were asked what kind of policies should Russia pursue in regards to countries of CIS. And again, we have this controversial perception because on the one hand, people uh, like Church, they praise the uh, politics of Putin, which is quite uh, uh, evidently military oriented uh, oriented on the inter, uh, to the intervention on the other hand they state that we would like to have the uh, like relations in which we would not interfere into domestic affairs of the countries but we would support this interference if 
it is in line with strategical again interest of Russia and so on. So it's a quite uh, controversial actually um, picture which, uh, which exists in the uh, hands of people and uh, still uh, while quite uh, significant part of people like a third at least a third of country they support the idea still support the idea uh, that actually access republic uh, by any means uh, or if necessary by force might be controlled or should be controlled by russia as the territory of russian interests uh, what is quite problematic here uh, it shifts in the orientations of Russian elites and Russian population. Uh, what we have in case of Ukraine and what we have in case of set of other countries, it's not about Putin. Uh, it's about the general uh, dispositions of Russian elites uh, who are in government. Uh, because last studies uh, by Inglehart and Russian uh, scientists from high school of economics, uh, they demonstrated that actually, first of all, if you're speaking about the suitability of different political systems uh, to, Russian uh, to Russian realities, uh, most favorable regime is authoritarian regime, not democratic or technocratic or something like this. And it's actually is true of not only for the older people, but for younger elites as well. And the next one. Uh, this study actually was presented in 2013, but it was not widely, uh, like, uh, mm, let's say so, promoted. And uh, what you see here is actually that Russian elites, they have been transitioning from an imperial consciousness to a predominantly nationalist ideology, fraught uh, with heightened aggressiveness, and that actually these more aggressive views uh, they, on, on the use of military force as the key factor of international relations, uh, they will likely take a harder line in foreign policy in coming years. Well, we have what we have now. And uh, what is the real problem here is that those elites, Russian elites, uh, those youngsters who will be in elites in 2020s and 2030s, they also uh, support this idea that key factor in international relations is military force. Well, annexation of Crimea, again, is seen as the uh, right choice. And if we will compare it with uh, declarations of Khodorkovsky, Navalny, Medvedev, you will see that actually they're not going to give Crimea back. Uh, versus by the way, Ponomarev and Kasparov, but Ponomarev and Kasparov are not seen as the possible leaders of Russia. Uh, while Medvedev might be seen in this, and while Putin somehow, people have a lot of expectations that if Putin will be eliminated, wow, something good will happen, everything will change. Uh, well, actually not. And um, population as well uh, would respond negatively to the idea of returning Crimea to Ukraine. So it will be a quite long lasting problem. And uh, also what we have with the support of the uh, so-called new republics, uh, which strive for autonomy uh, and so on. Again, people 
support the idea that Russia should help them, should continue to help them. Uh, last studies from September, again, uh, those people and so-called militia, uh, they should like have support from Russia. And these data, they are in line from different uh, service centers. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking about the recognition uh, of those uh, units, a uh, year ago, uh, people were ready to support the idea that they should be like uh, recognized by Russia as independent states. Well, now they don't so um, convinced in this, but still they support them. They support them and uh, actually in Russia there is a lot of different organizations now who are trying to help those republics and so on. Well, again, so-called republics. Uh, it's about responsibility. People don't see their, uh, themselves as responsible at any level for what is done by the Russian authorities. Even though they actually participate in this, being soldiers, being supporters, being voters, they see themselves as actually something which exists, some entity which exists uh, apart from the authorities. And it's again a very interesting phenomena of this public uh, consciousness, uh, which uh, helps the existing uh, regime actually to uh, reproduce uh, its legitimacy uh, at high level, uh, with higher level of population uh, support from the population. Uh, media. Uh, it's like a next uh, module, uh, next part of uh, this uh, presentation. Uh, speaking about the media, uh, majority of Russians, they see that the, the states that actually what is going on in Ukraine and that the fact that Ukrainians have distorted vision of what is going on in Ukraine, being in Ukraine, is a result of their belief in mass media. While, uh, if you will go to the studies of the trust to mass media in Ukraine, it is quite low now. Uh, it is quite low and people became quite critical to the mass media. Uh, while uh, what we have uh, in Russia, actually, uh, it's opposite uh, picture. It's a high level of trust to mass media. Uh, let me skip a couple of the uh, slides. Well, not this. Uh, this one is widely used, uh, this issue of nature, just in short, is widely used uh, in this uh, contemporary expert discussion that actually what happened in Ukraine is result of proliferation of NATO to Russia. Well, actually, before Russian intervention, uh, the idea of joining to NATO was actually not favored by Ukrainians at all. It was even not like a uh, point number first in any discussions and so on. Uh, but after this intervention, after occupation of Crimea, uh, the main shifts in this support for the joining uh, to NATO uh, has uh, happened in what regions? Not in Western Ukraine, not in Central Ukraine, in Southern and Eastern Ukraine. Southern and Eastern Ukraine they raised the level of support of idea of integration, joining the NATO. 
especially high level of this support uh, was noticed in Tehersonska Oblast and Mykolaivska Oblast, who was the closest oblast in April to the Crimea. So it's like face to face, they have polite green guys. Uh, and later, these shifts has happened in the uh, parts of Luganska and Donetska Oblast. Um, so it's like a well, speaking about the continuing this discussion about the media, uh, Russian population, uh, they trace really attentively what's going on in Ukraine. And it is quite uh, well expectable because at least uh, by different studies, uh, around 60% of Russians, they have some relations like a, a relative relationship uh, or some friendship, but mainly relative relationships with people from Ukraine grandmoms, husbands, and so on. Again, it's a policy of the Soviet Union as any empire, melting pot, and so on, these migrations, um, marriages, and so relations are quite, uh, well, um, quite close. So people try to trace what's going on in country. Uh, and they completely trust, almost completely trust uh, to their medias. And what is really interesting that, uh, for example, this year, this level of trust is even higher. I mean, people don't trust uh, that much information from internet, but they really trust information from the TV. Uh, while in Ukraine, we have a bit, well, a bit quite opposite situation. People try not to trust what they have from mass media. Uh, what also should be uh, taken into account in southern and eastern Ukraine, majority population, they actually uh, consume Russian-speaking uh, mass media. And this is also one of the main reasons of these different uh, pictures of the world, because pictures are really very opposite. Well, kind of conclusions. Uh, these pictures from some last news from Russia. And this is actually, to some extent, how metaphorically might be presented uh, this, uh, I would say, picture of the situation in uh, Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine, at the level of common sense. Well, there is Slavic unity which is actually endangered by the evil forces represented by the USA, um, Ukrainian fascism, well, and some other fascism, but they are our poor sisters, which should be united in the orthodox, uh, like, I don't know, religion maybe, uh, in countries of new Russia. And by the way, uh, by the by, this uh, city of Slavyansk uh, was selected not like occasionally, because it has quite you know prominent uh, for the Russian and Ukrainian speaking people name. It's from Slavic city of Slavic people, and Slavyansk was the city uh, which was most widely represented uh, in the news, especially in fake news. Uh, speaking about the support of Putin as the one who will try to refresh uh, position of Russia in the on world arena and so on, it's not only support from the youngsters, uh, excuse me, from older people, 
from pensioners who have nostalgia uh, to Soviet Union. No, the level of nostalgia to Soviet past is really high among uh, youngsters. Uh, studies actually demonstrate that uh, Soviet past is really popular uh, because it represents uh, the uh, Russia as a great country. And it makes sense uh, at some level uh, because to a large extent this anti-Americanism in attitudes and uh, this, you know, uh, dissatisfaction, disappointment with results of the reforms, so-called liberal reforms in Russia, uh, actually led people to the resentment and uh, this, uh, you know, favoring of this idea of renaissance, of great state, uh, because it, give, uh, it gives more sense to the existence of people. And this last situation of the mobilization around the different uh, military operations of uh, Russia in Syria and in Ukraine, uh, previously in Georgia, also like uh, add contribute into this uh, sense of the national pride, actually. Uh, speaking about the level of rationality of these views, it's like absolutely different issue because you see this little, uh, this one, Terrorist number one is USA. Terrorist number two is Central Bank of Russian Federation. Central Bank of Russian Federation trying to like destroy Russia. Uh, you can imagine what level of the literacy, economic literacy has have those people taking into account actually Central Bank is completely regulated by the government of Russia. It's impossible for Central Bank of Russia to make some like uh, independent decisions and so on. Uh, but you may see how actually easily uh, people might be mobilized uh, by the quite contradictory and quite often senseless uh, declarations. Do you understand what this refers to? Some sort of economic difficulties or they are just against this rich capitalist bloody bankers? As well, believe it's a mix of everything. Sir? It's a mix of everything in one. Uh, for example, they uh, protest against capitalists because Putin fights capitalists in Russia. Fights capitalists, yes. One of the main capitalists of the Russia fights capitalists. Putin uh, is the one who trying to restore Russia. Uh, people are pretending that they have to fight uh, against so-called uh, inner enemies, like uh, they call this Piata Colonna, uh, how to say it in English, fifth column, fifth column. I mean, uh, well, it's tricky, I would say. Let me see if it will work. Uh, we, we, need, uh, we, we need sound. Uh, do we have it? Should I turn on something here? It might be on that computer. Because the best part of my work is to pretend that I have smart face and all technical issues I may always ask to do for me because I'm not really like a very uh, good in it. Okay, let's try. Oh, no. 
Теперь к одной из главных тем недели. В Сирии продолжается операция российских воздушно-космических сил. Как отмечают эксперты, время до нее с точки зрения погоды... Первый удар по боевикам ИГИЛ были нанесены еще в среду 30 сентября. Несколько приемов российские бомбардировщики и штурмовики уничтожили крупный склад боеприпасов и, самое главное, командный пункт, откуда велась координация действий боевиков. Еще раз отметим, что время для начала воздушной операции выбрано очень удачно. Октябрь в Сирии в целом благоприятный для полетов в месяц. Средняя скорость ветра 2-4 метра в секунду, по климату всего один раз в октябре здесь могут наблюдаться сильные порывы до 15 метров. А дожди бывают лишь раз в 10 дней, причем самые интенсивные до 18 миллиметров осадков обычно наблюдаются как раз на севере, там, где идет операция российских ВВС. Но это не может оказать серьезного влияния на бомбардировки. С температурой еще проще, критической для полетов считается жара за 35, а до таких отметок в октябре столбики термометров в Сирии поднимаются редко. Тем не менее, осень уже дает о себе знать. По сравнению с сентябрем, в октябре резко увеличивается количество облачных дней с 2 до 13, да и пыльные бури периодически случаются. Однако недостаточная прозрачная атмосфера в ближайшее время не... Uh, well, to those who don't uh, understand Russian, what uh, this very glamour girl is speaking about is actually weather forecast. And she speaks that the weather in Syria is really very nice for bombing by Russian military forces. Because the air is clear, the temperature is quite optimal, so our operations will be very successful. Honestly speaking, I've heard about this video record, uh, about this forecast uh, from Konstantin Sonin, and I thought it's a joke. Though he told me that this is not. I didn't trust, well, yeah. I've, I, when I saw how uh, Russian officials signing the uh, exception of Crimea into the Russian Federation, I was also like not thinking, well, it's a joke, they will stop and say that, no, we are just like, it, it was a joke. The same was with Syria. It was not a joke. It's actually quite real, very real uh, weather forecast. Uh, and Russia 24 is a um, channel uh, which has national level of coverage. And the uh, well perception of the Russian operation in Syria is very favored by, again, Russian people and so on. Uh, Speaking about the future, uh, speaking about the future of these relations uh, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, will it be just a frozen conflict, which will be somehow uh, well solved in the short-term perspective? Uh, I'm quite skeptical about this uh, because if we'll compare last changes in the uh, values, uh, core human values, uh, which had happened in Russia. Uh, they're quite similar, by the way. Those values of Russians and Ukrainians are quite similar. But uh, there we have difference. It's level of traditionality. Secular rational values uh, versus traditional values. Uh, the conformity, the level of the, um, well, agreement with authorities, uh, the level of importance of God, and thus uh, ability to protest against authorities. Uh, by my studies, actually, uh, these type of values, secular, rational versus traditional, 
in uh, post-socialist societies is one of the main uh, determinant, uh, determinants of the readiness to protest for people. Uh, in uh, Russia, we have uh, this um, drop-down uh, in the level of secularity of values. Uh, the level of influence of church is really high now and the level of education is falling down. Uh, the level of trust mass media is rising. The level of um, well, support for education and science is falling down. So while you may trace future results of these processes, when actually, uh, you know, quite uh, irrational beliefs becoming more important and more supported at level of government, then uh, kind of educated and rational vision of the uh, different events and so on. It's like a first part. Uh, second part, again, uh, for Russia, the situation with Ukraine is not a surprise. It was a shock, real shock for Ukraine. The shock for Ukraine uh, was uh, then first people were killed on Maidan. It was absolute shock. Uh, the highest, even even highest level of shock uh, we had when actually this war have started, because it's ever never uh, was impossible to imagine that Russia will try to occupy Ukraine and that we will have military intervention. Uh, it's, it's just impossible, let's say so, to imagine this if you exist, uh, again, at the level of common sense. If we switch to the level of facts, uh, for last uh, years, for last 20 years, Russia continuously have been in state of war with neighbors. Transnistria, uh, Ossetia, Tajikistan, Georgia. By the way, Georgia is a two wars, so-called civil war in early 90s, and official big war in 2008. Uh, several Chechen war. By the way, first Chechen war also like started. Our military forces are not presented there. We are not there. Uh, then we have this uh, North Caucasus, Caucasus insurgency, annexation uh, of Crimea, war in Donbass, well, now Syria, civil war. Uh, also here should be added uh, participation in Yugoslavia, uh, military conflict. Uh, so at this level, it's a kind of more or less routine practice. And the last one, uh, which from my point of view is the most uh, dangerous actually. Well, even though this conflict uh, will be treated as frozen, or at least uh, people will try to froze it, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, this will be the end of the story. In this war, teenagers uh, took part their sons, grandsons of those people who eventually 
local people who eventually became involved into this war. Uh, by many means, uh, due to many reasons, uh, they became involved into this. Uh, we are not speaking about the reasons now and their motivation, uh, because there is a lot of reasoning, and this distorted uh, picture of the situation as well, because actually this uh, so-called Russian world uh, has been introduced at level of the attitudes and perceptions and different pictures in mass media, in literature, uh, in Eastern Ukraine, in Southern Ukraine, uh, not only in last years. It has been like a continuous process, especially uh, prominent, especially right, uh, it became in 2006, uh, when uh, they had a set of so-called uh, memorial wars in Ukraine. And what is uh, very interesting that all these memorials, which are very controversial, uh, they were actually put it on the, in these cities, uh, which were like uh, on the cleavages, uh, like on the border uh, between these, you know, old imperial uh, provinces of Russian Empire. And it was like a cause to introduce more imperialistic discourse of uh, so-called Russian world into Ukraine. Uh, those children which are raised on these territories now in schools, uh, they have new handbooks with very specific picture of events where Ukraine is presented very specific way, you can imagine how Ukraine is presented. And it means that in quite short-term perspective, uh, we will have a set of communities which see Ukraine as highly hostile neighbor. So this, uh, well, hate speech is not only just presented in the mass media, it is because we have to recognize that some level, uh, it is difficult to say what exactly uh, is presented uh, on Ukrainian side of this, you know, hate speech as well, but it is not institutionalized at level of the state uh, organizations. While in case of Russia, we have institutionalized efforts to introduce at the um, largest level of expansion this new picture of the world, where you will have new states, uh, Russian unity of Rus people, and so on and so on. Well, this little guy, actually, he has a flag of Novorossiya. Again, I'm pretty sure he is not aware of what he is wearing and so on. Uh, but while well, you know quite well as scientists uh, how important is process of uh, this socialization in the childhood. And we all remember this quite famous quote of Bismarck, that actually wars are won not by military forces, but by school teachers. And this is um, just average lesson in Alushta in Crimea uh, about the Ruskaya Vesna. Uh, the set of such uh, lessons is introduced into Russian schools as well. Uh, 
they have a set of new scientific uh, studies now, uh, which actually ground why these territories are more Russian than any other, and so on. I'm sorry, does, does your um, graph there represent where these kinds of new studies uh, this graph uh, represents the level of perceptiveness uh, to the Russian propaganda in Ukraine. Kiev International Institute of Sociology. Are you receptive? I'm sorry. Uh, perception. Level of the how influential is Russian propaganda in specific region, in specific oblasts? Uh, because the best way actually to deal with Ukraine, it's not speaking about these, you know, uh, cultural divisions, because um, there is no, uh, like, division actually in Ukraine, uh, which is quite, quite often is presented as divided, like two Ukrainians and so on. Uh, it's not true by many, uh, by many reasons and by many, uh, actually, scientific studies. Uh, but what we have here on this map, uh, keep international Institute of Sociology, they introduced a kind of index of propaganda influence uh, and its level of the agreement with the main uh, declarations of Russian propaganda. It's again, it's open information, you may go to the site and see this. And again, you may see that actually those regions uh, which were earlier introduced, uh, excuse me, uh, earlier like uh, became related uh, with Soviet Union or with Russian Empire, which were more actively Russified for last 20, for last 200 of years. Uh, they are actually more receptive to this propaganda. Uh, though by the by, we have problematic regions uh, in Western Ukraine as well. It's close to the um, uh, Romania, and uh, well, the most problematic are uh, these two oblasts of uh, Donetska and Luganska. Uh, but again, it is a very interesting question why these uh, regions are selected. If we will go a bit deeper in history, uh, we should maybe recollect this statement by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, uh, who declared that it's very important to have Donbass under our control. Why? What is Donbass at level of economy? Coal and and yeah, coal mines and gas and many resources. Crimea. A uh, couple of years ago, there was a huge scandal. Uh, there was actually a process in court, in European court, about the shelf between Romania and Ukraine, where we have now occupied by Russia huge sources of natural gas, maybe the biggest in Europe which are even not used so far, and they are really might be easily accessed if there will be like level of enough investments. And again, it is not announced uh, that uh, at this level, but not only Crimea is occupied, by 
some territories, small territories of Khersonska Oblast are also occupied, specifically those one uh, where they have oil pumping uh, towers. Uh, where is this oblast? Uh, Khersonska Oblast is 26. Yeah, uh, it's this uh, very uh, light, very small part of the territory. Uh, what does it all, all means? That Ukraine actually lost access to its own energetic resources, and that Russia may control. Uh, these territories, as well as, as European territories, uh, at level of the energy supplies. And by the by, first year when uh, actually uh, gas uh, became like instrument of political influence, uh, it was not then Putin became uh, came to power. It was to it was 1996 when Primakov came to power. And then actually we have a start of gas wars and pressure and control. Uh, so, well, I have to agree with some experts uh, from some think tanks, uh, which whom I have confrontation at level of the evolution situation in Ukraine. But uh, what I agree about that actually for uh, at this level, uh, we may see kind of changes at ge in geopolitical situation uh, because uh, what Russia is doing, uh, they are they are brilliant in the usage of the anti-American coalition, uh, coalition of right forces, right-wing parties in Europe, left-wing parties in Europe uh, and anywhere. So. All anti-systemic movements are used with usage of different types of rhetorics. And uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, it, uh, I had possibility to review a book of Anna Politkovska, uh, this famous journalist who was killed in Russia. Uh, there he actually declared that Russian government is brilliant in usage of all instruments of public relations. Uh, to follow their economic interests. So to a large extent, it's not about the national interests and so on. It's about the capitalistic interests. Uh, it's not about interests of Russian people. Russian people are quite used here. And what is uh, actually a problem, uh, it's how successful is propaganda. And uh, for Ukraine, uh, the problem is that it's uh, that this is actually a very contingent situation uh, where you don't have the clear answer what will happen in future. Again, due to the routines of this foreign policy of Russia. Uh, because again, when we're speaking about the Russia, maybe we should uh, put aside Russian culture and Russian elites with their economic interests. So it's, uh, again, it's a quite tricky situation. Uh, for Ukraine, uh, in closest, in nearest future, uh, what we will have is a humanitarian catastrophe in eastern Ukraine, uh, because Russia is now stuck into Syria. They have almost no support to those people. 
For Ukraine, uh, for Ukraine, because those two republics, it's a part of Ukraine. We are yeah. speaking about republics, but let's be completely honest. If I would live in Donetsk yes. and I would participate in a demonstration where my neighbors would be killed by knives, yes. and then I would uh, be actually confronted by guys with automates, yes. I'm not really sure I would win the Ukrainian flag sure. and fighting yes. for independence. But my point is that the uh, situation in these two, however you want to call this, uh, is probably rather different than the rest of Eastern Europe, the Eastern Ukraine. Uh, yes, of course, uh, because not all Eastern Ukraine is involved into this. Yes. Uh, there was a very uh, representative case, uh, because first troops of these uh, occupants uh, partially were so-called Russian Cossacks, uh, and those guys, they came to some uh, countryside uh, of the northern Donbass, north of Donbass, uh, it's a place where live uh, hunters. They have a lot of forests there, and all people there they have actually uh, rifles at home. They came. People say hello to them, and they go away. In those territory, on those territories, uh, where actually you have well, just normal population, which is not actually learned how to fight and so on. You have what you have. And it's a quite routine uh, behavior of any population under any occupation in any country. So I wouldn't be so blaming uh, about those people. But this is humanitarian catastrophe for Ukraine, uh, because it's Ukrainian citizens. And they uh, actually live now on territories where infrastructure is ruined. Infrastructure is completely ruined. It's impossible. They don't have access to clear water. They don't have access to, well, to energetic resources as they had in, uh, before, and so on. So I mean, well, it's a huge problem. So uh, it's a long. It might be a long talk, uh, and I'd really appreciate your attention, and I would be uh, glad to hear your questions, and I will try to do my best in answering them. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. If there's a difference between Western and Eastern Ukraine and its attitudes, their attitudes on Russia, is there also a difference between rural and urban Ukraine, or between educated and uneducated Ukraine? Uh, yes, it's difference uh, to some. Uh, well, I would say to large extent between urban and rural, because rural uh, Eastern Ukraine actually is quite often Ukrainian speaking. By the way, uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. It's a big cities with Russian-speaking population, but again, due to the policy of melting pot, uh, which was introduced uh, by Russian Empire beforehand and later uh, by the Soviet Union. So yes, there is difference at this level. Uh, speaking about the education, yes, uh, those people who are more highly educated, they are more supportive to Ukraine. Because again, it's about rational thinking, 
It's about critical thinking. Um, and, uh, well, this is it. Also. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, you and you, please. Well, you see, a uh, problem with uh, refugees is that there is official statistics and unofficial statistics. Officially, uh, by records of UNDP and Ukraine together, we have at least like half point five million of refugees, uh, plus around million of people who went to the Russia because it was closer and they have relatives there and so on. Uh, it's not because they're big fans of Russia and so on. But by some informal evaluations, uh, actually we have at least twice more refugees. Uh, because quite often people just went without any registration and so on. So we don't have full picture of what is going on with refugees in, uh, on the, in these regions. And besides, we have a flow of people who came back because they was not able to find new work. Uh, they have spent all their money for renting, let's say, the apartments and so on, no work, they came back due to many reasons. But uh, so there is no like clear statistics of this. But this is it. And your question, please. Well, thank you for this very perplexing uh, talk. Um, um, I was just going to record my question. Um, in the Soviet period, the uh, concepts of the Soviet identity, Sovietsky Soyuz, mm -hmm. a communist party, uh, a socialist fatherland, uh, a great fatherhood war, the how did all this become Russian suddenly? How, how, how do the Russians view this Soviet past, this communist past? How do the Ukrainians view a Soviet past, a communist past? And it's, uh, uh, this is very perplexing to me that uh, these great events, military victories, parades, and so forth, uh, which were once the collective work of the multinational Soviets, people are now made into a peculiarly Russian mm -hmm. property, or how do the Ukrainians use this? What, what happened to the past here, to the Soviet past, to the communist past? I think it's a very good question, and uh, there is no, like, a you know, uh, the one-side answer. Uh, speaking about the identity, uh, what is tricky uh, due to the contemporary situation 
that Soviet project uh, it's a modern project it's the invention of the enlightenment and project of communism actually it's not invention of Russia it's invention of Western Europe <coughs> and uh, what is the main idea of socialistic community uh, which was actually uh, developed by Marx you go beyond the national identities to the more universalistic identity being like a person of the uh, universe and so on and uh, what is quite often seen or treated as a conflict of identities in contemporary Ukraine is that actually Western Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine uh, are different because Eastern Ukraine is more modernized at this level of uh, closeness to the more universalistic identity if we will treat this identity as the good path for future nations and so on well why not cooperation is always good for betterment of life and so on but instruments are important how it is now uh, while after collapse of Soviet Union uh, what we had we had the boost of national state building processes uh, and related conflicts in uh, these societies and what actually uh, from my point of view and here I also rely on studies of some historians uh, what uh, was not uh, done properly by Ukraine uh, it was a protection of her right for the Soviet property and at, at many levels uh, but Ukraine should not uh, should not have left to Russia this uh, privatization of common uh, past at level of many inventions and so on uh, but uh, due to the uh, negotiations between leaders of laterly CIS countries uh, Russia was recognized as the правонаступник um, how to say it in English legal successor. legal successor of the Soviet Union and again uh, Russia always was seen as the core of Soviet Union even though by the by Ukraine was constitutional part of this from the very early period until the very late period so Ukraine actually is not protecting her like right for these possessions and Russia Russian uh, political elites for many years uh, they had this you know very versatile political market of many ideas uh, because again to large extent as it looks like it was not about the national interests anymore it was about the interests of the specific uh, class of those who have and this class actually was consisted of the earlier um, communist party nomenclatura plus mafia plus those guys who were who had access to administrative resource the same was in Ukraine uh, but in Ukraine uh, well due to many reasons uh, we had higher level of the contest between those elite groups 
and this is why we had this like higher level of the uh, protest activities and so on and also due to this history actually of countries because well history of Ukrainian uh, development uh, our population uh, at level of values is quite different if compared to Russia even though uh, at many level uh, values are human values are quite similar uh, the perception of importance of autonomy is different uh, so this is actually what we have. This political market uh, led uh, to the very tricky and shrewd usage of many mixes of different ideologies in Russia, uh, just like to, well, to some extent, uh, to have more fame, uh, which, have, which help to control resources. Uh, and exploited people and the same by the by uh, partially we had in Ukraine uh, because issues of nationality issues of language they were heavily instrumentalized politically uh, for mobilization of electorates during the elections while normally by all studies these issues uh, were never well they were important by not that seen as conflict uh, by people while it was uh, developed as a very conflict issues uh, introduced as very conflict issues by again different political forces because it's very emotionally anchoring issues uh, which really very helpful helpfully work at level of short uh, period mobilization of people and besides again it was used as the uh, this Mm, you know, like a mask for the economical uh, processes. For example, uh, very interesting case. A couple of years ago, uh, there was a huge protest and a huge quarrel about the uh, so-called introduction of the uh, Russian, Russian language supporting law before Maidan uh, in Ukrainian parliament. And there was a big protest in intellectuals around all these, and all mass media were full of these. But actually, what happened in the day of this voting in parliament? At 9.30, they were voting for the language. And everything around was like a trembling and so on. At 11, uh, they voted for the set of laws and rules which actually introduced quite tricky uh, redistribution of budget, uh, which uh, by these rules uh, was like eliminated from the control of population in, in for future. So I mean, it was you see like used and, and several times it was used this way. So these very important uh, issues related to identity and which are inherited in culture through many reasons. They are very tricky used by the elites uh, for whom these ideological issues are just like a, well, commodity on this political market. This is actually what to a large extent we have now uh, in post-Soviet space. We have this class of ex-nomenclatura 
uh, who are still actually are in all these authorities. Because, for example, if you will go through the studies of the uh, how it is called uh, recruiting of different elites uh, in parliament, you will see that uh, on the level of social network analysis, uh, it was demonstrated that actually we have the same people. They just changed names of parties, uh, or they uh, took their relatives into, this, into these structures. So again, it became something like a, a system of nepotism even. It was becoming this nepotistic system, uh, which was partially stopped by these Maidan events. And we will see what will happen in future, because again, situation is quite contingent, uh, because again, here, uh, huge impact uh, have decisions of the, let's say so, big countries who were involved into signing this Budapest, Budapest memorandum and so on, and who now actually uh, refused uh, to large extent to protect sovereignty of Ukraine, uh, because if Ukraine will be compared, for example, with suffering Syria or bigger world problems, it's not that important. And quite, you know, prominent discourse, which now has uh, is been developed, uh, is been developing among the uh, experts of think tanks in USA, is like we should think about interests of Russia and. USA, not about Ukraine, because it's the interest of Russia and so on. So it's a quite interesting discussion, I would say, and endless. Thank you. We'll be our last question because we're running out. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then you saw recently um, there's been circulation of segment on social media um, from it's an expert of news from Russian uh, media site Panorama that um, did a segment on the um, the state day uh, in the schools in the, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk uh, uh, People's Republics, which have now declared that one day uh, out of the year they will have the state day. And uh, the segment proceeded essentially to um, educate the younger generation of those republics um, about uh, the nature of their state and starting basically the grassroots building up of the rhetoric of where these republics have come from and starting to build up essentially the groundwork from, for future propaganda of statehood. Um, in the context of that, my question is, to what extent, uh, given all the crises that Ukraine is now unfortunately facing and fighting, um, caused by the Russian aggression, uh, in this context, to what extent uh, do you think the Ukrainian society is paying attention and is capable of dealing with the long-term effects and the hearts and minds problem uh, that is going to unfortunately, uh, be one to last for a while as the result of this conflict, including, uh, particularly importantly, in the, uh, the occupied uh, territories. Uh, thank you. Uh, this is actually a question which uh, I'm concerned 
concerned with as well. And uh, this is what I was talking about. Again, we have uh, we will have generation of children there with a completely hostile attitude to Ukraine. And Ukrainian society, unfortunately, is not ready to this challenge, as well as Ukrainian society was not ready uh, to the military invasion. So it's like, it's all is on a move. Uh, there is no uh, kind of national level initiative which uh, would deal with, uh, let's say, so hearts and minds of those children and their parents. And to large extent, again, uh, this affair is related to the level of their economical status. Uh, because, well, again, uh, when of the major needs are not satisfied you can think about the like you know uh at level of critical thinking and so on you just blame the first person who might be blamed or the first uh institution which might be blamed and uh they have the pattern who should be blamed ukraine uh so i don't know uh what will happen uh, with these territories in future. Uh, there is a set of different initiatives which are trying to deal somehow with uh, refugees uh, because it's completely new challenge for Ukraine. Uh, there is a set of initiatives which are trying to help people at level of providing them with food and so on, with clothes. Uh, but what might be done uh, with level of their education uh, it's quite problematic uh, issue uh, because those territories are controlled by guys who are supported by Russia and they will introduce and they introducing institutionally organized new a uh, picture, a new vision of the situation for people. It's a classic Orwell, absolutely classic Orwell, and it's awful uh, because, well, there might be created uh, organizations which will help those children, for example, uh, to have better life chances, to get better education and so on. Uh, but again, there is a lot of other agents of socialization, let's say so, who are influencing their views. And, uh, well, it's a lot about the propaganda, it's a lot about the peace-building practices, it's a lot about the dealing with issues which normally are solved in post-conflict societies, and it's a completely new challenge for Ukraine. And, uh, well, it should be maybe organized uh, more thoroughly at national level, but we have what we have actually. And we will see how civil society uh, will be 
at, at what level it will be successful in maybe fundraising the resources for this. Uh, but so far people are trying somehow to deal with the uh, closest needs, like again, where to live, what to eat and so on. Result, uh, these ideological issues are not addressed uh, properly. And we have again this RL, unfortunately. So, to a large extent, it's even not about Ukraine or Ukrainian identity or any other identity. It's more about the ability to have kind of, you know, more or less normal values, values of the value in the, uh, value in the cooperation, peace, and so on. Uh, while we have, unfortunately, uh, neighbors with government who is really uh, not so sensitive to the issue of the suffering, suffer uh, of people who are involved into the uh, wars. For Ukraine, it's a sensitive topic. In Russia, well, no, uh, because almost in any family you will have someone who participated in some hidden operations somewhere, uh, or in not hidden operations, war operations somewhere. So to a large extent, it's not even about the uh, kind of, you know, national identities. It's about the psychology of clientele system. It's the same we have in Roman Empire. Then actually, while well, people from one uh, people of one identity could be on different sides because they had kind of loyalty to different lords. It's a quite tricky situation. And to a large extent, it's again, it is rooted in the economical insecurity. So uh, economic crisis in Ukraine and uh, how Russia used it and deepened it, added a lot, contributed a lot into this and will contribute a lot, unfortunately. I'm afraid we're out of time, but uh, please join me in thanking Dr. Kruka for...